all words in virtually every language have at least two aspects that are important for us to understand. First one is called polymacy, which simply means they can carry many meanings, poly meanings, many meanings, and particularly in a translation from one language to another. One Greek word can be translated in a number of ways in English, and you'll find that everywhere. And the second part that you need to know about words is that they are multivalent. That is, they can carry many values, layers of values. And so we have to always be aware of this. And the word triumph, I could almost say every word, but the word triumph is a very, very important word along this line. It means victory, and it comes from, of course, the Greek word nikos, which is victory. Unfortunately, Nike did that one, didn't they? Uh, but that's still the Greek word for victory or triumph. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Colossae, said this, beginning in chapter 2, verse 14. He said, And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, that is Jesus, when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to his cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public example of them. And here's this word, triumphing. It's a form of the Greek word for victory, triumphing over them in his cross. I want to read another translation, and I apologize to you that I did not get this for an overhead, but you listen up, okay? This is a good translation from the Jerusalem Bible, and I'm going to read the entire context of the word triumph here. Paul writes, In his body, that is the body of Jesus, lives the fullness of divinity. And in him you too find your own fulfillment, in the one who is the head of every sovereignty and power. In him you have been circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hand, but by the stripping of your body of flesh. This circumcision is according to Christ. You have been buried with him and you were, when you were baptized, and by baptism you too have been raised up with him through your belief in the power of God who raised him from the dead. You were dead because you were sinners and had not been, and had not been, uncir had not been circumcised, that is, with the circumcision of Christ. He has bought you to life. He has created life for you. He has forgiven us all our sins. He has overridden the law and canceled every record of the debt that we had to pay. If you can't say good to that, I don't know what you can say to. He has done away with it by nailing it to the cross. And so he got rid of the sovereignties and powers. He divested himself of the sovereignties and powers, paraded them in public, behind him, 
in his triumphal procession. Now, that passage says a lot of things. Number one, it says that our sins, which deserve punishment, have been taken out of the way by the cross. And so even before Christ's resurrection, where we're going to center on today in his ascension, even before that happened, his death was the means by which he was able to render powerless the devil's power and to free those who had been held as slaves to that power. So even the death of Christ is a triumph, a victory. The word Nikos, or victory, or triumph, is a warfare term. It's warfare language. It belongs among the many metaphors for what Christ has done for us, and all those who are in Him are also engaged in warfare, but we're also engaged in His victory. When light and order overcome darkness and chaos, that's victory, that's success, that's triumph. But, but, on a Friday in A.D. 33, by the order of the governor of Judea, the Roman governor of Judea, outside the city of Jerusalem, we see three crosses that festooned a, a skull-like knoll. On the cross in the middle, there was a placard for the one who is dying there. And it read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. He had a crown, but not a crown of gold. He had a crown of thorns pressed into his head. He was dying naked in great agony. And in his very dying moment, he cries out, It is finished. God in Christ triumphed. Listen, that's a triumphal cry. Not a resignation. A cry of victory and triumph. Victorious, even in death. And this triumph, this shout of victory was a complete surprise to everybody in the cosmos except God. So what seemed like defeat turned out to be victory. Tolkien has a word for this, as he did for most things. He called it a eucatastrophe. <laughs> Isn't that a great word? Eucatastrophe. A catastrophe that's been turned around. A catastrophe that has been become better. And so this horrible, horrific Friday has become known for centuries as Good Friday. Good Friday. There's even a literary word for this. It's called peripatia. It means an unexpected change of circumstances. A surprise. You're going along and everything seems to be going this way and just in the nick of time, something changes. Peter put it like this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, the Lord and the Messiah. What seemed like humiliation, and certainly it was, was also a manifestation of glory. That's you catastrophe. 
Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians. He said, he died on the cross in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. Again, he says in Philippians, he, Christ, humbled himself even unto the death of the cross, but God raised him to the height. Now, I said all that to say this, the basic presupposition in all the scripture that we are to receive for all of reality is this, the incarnate, crucified, risen, and ascended Lord Jesus. We are to see everything in that light. That light is to permeate all of our thought and all of our perceptions. The fact of bodily resurrection is really everywhere assumed in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's, it's in varying places. For example, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 12, 2, Daniel writes, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to eternal life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 26, Your dead will live, their corpses will arise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 quotes Hosea chapter 13. Hosea writes, I will ransom them, God speaking, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol, that's the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, where are your thorns? O grave, where is your sting? But in the Old Testament, this is a general kind of resurrection, a, a bodily resurrection, a general kind of thing. The great surprise came when the New Testament comes along and resurrection of an eternal life sort happens in the middle of history with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that all happened according to Scripture, the Old Testament as well as the New. The ending of Luke's Gospel that was read this morning is actually the introduction to the book of Acts. After his resurrection, Jesus joined, you may remember this story, two completely discouraged disciples walking toward the village called Emmaus. It was seven miles uh, from Jerusalem. And they were disciples of Jesus. They had been. They, they knew that Jesus had been crucified. They knew he had been buried, but they did not know at that point that he had been raised from the dead. And they couldn't even imagine that he would be alive, and particularly not with a, a body that you could look at and touch and handle. But he joins them, we are told, and he's walk, they're walking along, talking, and finally they come to eat a meal together. And in the course of this, he s explains to them the Old Testament, the Scriptures. And finally, and, and he sort of chides them, he said, it, it's like, you, you ought to have known this. I mean, you, you ought to have known what was there, but they didn't. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark has Jesus giving his disciples specific in a telling about what's going to happen. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to, be a I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. Three times he said that to them, and it went zip right over their heads. They did not even understand it. And so finally, at this meal, he's sitting there. And something's happening to them as he speaks about the Scripture. He said to them, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer and then enter into his glory? And their minds were open to the reality. And 
he's gone. And they get up from the meal and zip back toward, I think they were in a, a trot all the way back to Jerusalem. And they got there and they said, the Lord has risen indeed and he's appeared to Simon. Resurrection and ascension, put them together in your mind. The resurrection of Jesus from the grave, the ascension to the right hand of God the Father, they go together and they indicate at least two things. Number one, because of his resurrection and ascension, God has put an end to the agony of death, beginning with the death of his son. So that by that resurrection, by that beginning, the resurrection of Jesus, it's really the beginning of a process of new creation. New creation. In that it's the beginning of an overcoming of the condition of the old creation. The old creation was created good, but what happened? Sin comes in and death comes in because of sin. There was a decreation because of sin. And it's characterized by bodily decay. It's characterized by death, dust to dust. Okay? The second thing that this says is the resurrection and the ascension fulfills the promise that God made to David, King David. He said, I'm going to seat one of your descendants from your body upon the throne. Now, that did not happen until Jesus came, who was a descendant of David. Christ Jesus, in his ascension, has begun to sit on the throne, the ultimate in-time kingdom. Even more so than when he proclaimed the onset of that. Remember, Jesus went around preaching what he preached. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the beginning of it, the onset. But now that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, there is a, not only a continuation of it, there is a, an advancement of it. Advancement of that purpose that all the world will come to. There was an inauguration in his resurrection and ascension, and now he's continuing in office. It's like a president being inaugurated the first day, and then he continues, or anybody. Inauguration, a beginning, and we're in that time. And so the main point of Jesus' resurrection and ascension is that the beginning, as wonderful as it was, is even more escalated kingship than at its commencement in his three-year ministry. Now, how in the world can I say that? Because of what Jesus said. He said, it's good that I go away because the Holy Spirit's going to come and continue this ministry in multiple people. Multiple people. That happened. We'll talk about it in just a moment. Not just one person, the Son of God, or not just a few people, his disciples, but now millions of people around the world are called upon and anointed to go forth and proclaim Jesus is Lord and King. Jesus is the rightful ruler of the universe, and he is currently ruling now. So, let's see what the four Gospels actually say about Christ's resurrection. Now, I'm going to talk about the order of events that you see in the four Gospels. Go and go through fast now. You ready? Here, number one. Before dawn, sometime around dawn, on Sunday, the first day of the week, he'd been placed in the, in the tomb on Friday. 
before dawn, around dawn, there was an earthquake. And an angel removed the large stone from the mouth of the tomb. Not to let Jesus out, but to let the women in who were coming. Number two. Soon after dawn, four women came to the tomb in order to embalm the dead body of Jesus. And they were absolutely startled when they peered into the tomb because when they got there, the, the, the stone had already been rolled away and that was what was bothering them. Who's going to move that big stone? We, we four women can't do this. It was, it was already then. Then one of the four only one that's named Mary Magdalene, she left the other three standing there, and she ran back to tell Peter and John that the body of Jesus had been stolen. Not raised from the dead, stolen. Somebody came and got the body. And he, she went back to tell him. Meanwhile, the other three women, curious as they were, bent down and moved into the entrance of the tomb. And there they were met by angels who told them that Jesus' body was not stolen. It was raised from the dead, and they should go tell the rest of the disciples. Now, while they're on their way to do this, they actually met Jesus himself. They saw him, and he said the same message the angels had, go tell my disciples. Now, Mary Magdalene has gone back. She doesn't know this. She's informed Peter and John and so they ran to the tomb and found the tomb empty. They, saw, they looked in. They saw the grave claws there. And they hurried back to tell the other disciples. But they weren't going back and saying, we know he's raised from the dead. They just went back. Mary Magdalene followed them, and she came back to the tomb. And she was standing there outside the tomb, and it's in a garden. And she began to weep, weep. And while in the garden, she saw and heard and talked to Jesus himself. The other three women had found some of the disciples, not all of them, but found some, and told them that he's alive, the angel said to tell us, and we saw him, and none of those disciples believed it. None of them believed it. It says it seemed to them that these women were just telling tales. Then the disciples that day gathered together toward the afternoon now, getting toward evening, quietly in a home away because they feared the authorities of both the Roman and the Jewish authorities. Then Mary, after her encounter with the Lord Jesus, arrived at this house and told her experience. And then that afternoon, that's the time when we, I told you about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That happened then, in the afternoon on Sunday. Then that evening, sometime that evening, Jesus appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem while Thomas, an apostle, was not there. A week later, we're told, Jesus appeared to all the apostles. They're still in hiding now, including Thomas, who then believed Later, Jesus appeared in Galilee, we are told, to seven of the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And at some point, he appeared to more than 500 disciples all at one time. He also appeared to James, we are told, that is, the stepbrother of Jesus. And finally, Jesus appeared to a group of believer disciples that we read about in Acts in Jerusalem 
immediately before his ascension. They heard him and watched him ascend toward the heaven. Then what's, this is what Luke writes. He's an historian. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. Notice that. Many convincing proofs appearing to them over the course of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, it is no virtue, either before God or men, to believe something on the basis of insufficient evidence. That would be foolishness. Faith in Christ is not a leap in the dark. There are good and sufficient and wonderful reasons to believe that this is true. Historians have said this. There's a great historian called A.M. Hunter. And I'm going to read this little, it's, it, it's interesting, right? He says, the testimony of the Gospels is not only notably free of apocalyptic features, but also is vivid, lifelike, and self-authenticating. By the way, I challenge you to read the Scripture and see if it's not self-authenticating. Just read it. Read it for yourself. When Mark, he goes on, when Mark tells of the women's discovery of the empty tomb, or Luke records the walk to Emmaus, or John relates Mary Magdalene's meeting with Jesus in the garden, we feel we are reading real history. And we are. The disciples, obviously, obviously, just go back and look at church history. They actually believed that God had raised Jesus from the dead. And they staked their very lives and their very existence upon that confidence. Some people say, well, their faith produced the resurrection in the ascension story. Not at all. The resurrection and ascension story created their faith. Just the opposite. The concrete facts of resurrection and ascension were there. They knew that it had happened. And the facts of his resurrection completely then began to color and influence and mark the way that they lived and spent their whole lives. But it doesn't stop there. Also, there's the miracle of Pentecost. Now, Jesus appeared 40 days on the earth. Ten days before, the word Pentecost means 50, and it's a, 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 the third of three major feasts in the Old Testament. Jesus, it had been 40 days after his crucifixion, after Passover, he appeared. Then 10 days, they prayed and waited. And that's called Pentecost. And when the day of Pentecost came, there were a whole bunch of them in an upper room, we we're told, had gathered to pray, doing what Jesus had said do, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in that room, there appeared, we are told, tongues like fire that separated and set on the heads of each of them there, men and women. A great and mighty wind came blowing through. Wind and fire, wonderful emblems of God the Holy Spirit. And it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to utter unspoken or unlearned languages in, in, in praise to God. Speaking of the magnificence and greatness of God. And they said, because this happened to us, we know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father because he said it was going to happen, and it did happen. 
He poured forth this. So the resurrection and ascension mean a number of things, and I'll give you just a few. Number one, it gives proof of the revelation in the Bible that God was in Christ reconciling the world into himself. The fullness of the Godhead was in our Lord Jesus in bodily form. Number two, his resurrection and ascension is more evidence that our sins have been forgiven. Not just the cross, but his resurrection and ascension, more evidence that our, God has blotted out our sins. A complete atonement was made through the death of Jesus on the cross, but now liberty is proclaimed everywhere. Our debts have been canceled, and we are without condemnation before the Father. Number three, holiness and righteousness have triumphed over sin and death. Love is greater than death. Love triumphs. And number four, the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of our bodily resurrection. He, Paul said, is the first fruits. And we at his coming, if we have died before that occurs, we at his coming will be raised from the dead and given bodies like his all-glorious body. Evil, death, will not have the last word. We will, we will live to know when he comes again that in a, this universe will ultimately be seen to be being remade and called a new heaven and a new earth. And finally, Christ's resurrection is the beginning of the last days. Beginning of the last days, called the final days. Resurrection and ascension are end-of-the-world events. The old creation passing away, the new creation taking more and more hold. And, of course, it gives us the only true idea of what the afterlife will look like. Jesus is the pattern for our resurrection. After his resurrection, Jesus did not appear as some ghost or some spirit. Listen to what he said. Handle me. Touch me. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He said, and they're just standing there, said, have you got anything to eat? <laughs> well, they happened to have something at one point. He ate with them. He has a body, and it's a glorious body. Folk, we, we, I have heard people say, well, I, heaven, we, we're all going to go to heaven, and we're just going to float around in a cloud with, with no, 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 no. Christ is coming to a renewed earth, and we're going to live and reign with him on earth in bodies, in bodies that are going to be perfect like his all-glorious body. Thus, the resurrection and ascension produce saving faith, produce saving hope, living hope. And I want to tell you, there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. You won't find it anyplace else. It's only in Him. The resurrection and the ascension mean that Jesus is Lord in the very highest sense. He is God the Almighty. Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee ought to bow. They shall bow. And every tongue ought to confess, ought to say that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of God the Father. Paul said, He ascended on high. Why? That He might fill all things. Therefore, He's not absent from us. Listen to what He says. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do you believe that? It's true. Absolutely true. He's with us. T.W. Manson wrote some years ago, he said, talking about the ministry of Jesus, his present ministry, by the way, his ascended ministry at the right hand of the Father, he said, this, his ministry has gone on for 20 centuries and more, and it still goes on. What is the secret of its staying power? The answer of the whole New Testament is that it is the risen Christ himself who is carrying it out. He says it's very easy for us who've been born into a so-called scientific age to think of Jesus as bequeathing his principles and ideals to his followers and then just leaving it to them to carry on in their own strength. This is not the truth at all. It's clear from the records that if it had been left up to the disciples to take up those tasks, their choice would have fallen elsewhere. Peter and Andrew would have, gone, would have spent the rest of their unrecorded lives trying to re rebuild their fishing business <laughs> because they had left their business to go follow him if he's dead. It's, he's simply an ill-fated prophet from the nowhere town of Nazareth, and no good thing could come out of that. No, the reality of the church is far different. It's Christ himself who as head of the church continues to build it, who takes the lead, whose very presence and power are constant inspiration and strength and power. The resurrection and the ascension means that we Christians do not simply inherit our tasks and callings. We actually share those with Him. We're not just the successors of Jesus. We are the companions of Jesus. As Elder Pete likes to say all the time, we join him in his work. <laughs> That's right. That's what happens. The already of the good, and by the way, this is really good news. This is really good news. The already of the good news is that we are now forgiven. Our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. That's really good news. We are now, by faith, seated with Him in heavenly places. And then, the not yet, at His coming, we will reign with Him forever and ever. When the Son of God is finally manifested in His glory, when the fullness of His victory over all sin and death is revealed, then all the sons of God will be also manifested. And you know what? The cosmos is going to burst into song, and it's going to be this one. Hallelujah! The Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. I had just turned 18 years old. I was a freshman in Baylor University, my first semester there. Uh, I, I was called to preach and so on, and I was studying, and I had never, ever heard the Messiah, Handel's Messiah. I, I'd never heard it. And I, I, they, so toward the end of the first semester before the Christmas break, the announcement came, uh, the music department Baylor's music department, great orchestra, 200-voice choir. 
They're going to fill Waco Hall, and they're going to sing the Christmas portion of the Messiah. I'd never heard it, so I want to go. <laughs> and so I got there with my friends, and the downstairs was packed. There wasn't a seat there. So we went upstairs and found seats right on the, on the edge, right where the balcony began. And I sat there enthralled, listening to music. I had never heard anything like that. And then, of course, traditionally, the Hallelujah Chorus is put into the Christmas portion, which really wasn't originally, but, but it was. And I'd never heard the Hallelujah Chorus, you know. And they got, came down to the end, and they said, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. I started it. And I didn't even know the tradition was to stand. You couldn't have kept me from standing. <laughs> it went through me like a, a lightning bolt. I, I, could, I almost leapt over the, the thing. It built and built. If you ever, it, I mean, it, it's magnificent. And, and then I think, what is it going to be like when millions of the redeemed and the stars themselves Sing his praise. There's a coming a day like that. I want to be a part of it, don't you? He has triumphed. His triumph is our triumph. His victory, his conquest. There aren't enough words to express the greatness of it, except to say thank you and receive it. Pray with me, please. Father.